You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 484 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, October 16th, 2022, and we've got a lot to get to in this episode. First of all, and this is kind of a petty annoyance sort of a thing, but I'll mention it anyways. I got the last two podcast episodes posted up to the com this morning, the one from yesterday and also the one from the day before. And Facebook <clears throat> would not share the image. It shared the link, but it would not display the featured image on yesterday's episode. Everything was set up correctly. I double, triple, quadruple checked. And I've done this hundreds of times now. Like I said, this is episode 484. So I know how to choose a featured image And I also know it's not normal for the featured image to not display. And actually, having posted two this morning, the first one was fine. But then the second one about Andrew Tate's grandmother, Elon Musk, and Ukraine, and none dare call it conspiracy, that one just would not, no matter how many times I refreshed or reconfigured or whatever, it just wouldn't go through. And all I can figure out All I can reckon is that the picture having originally been of a beautiful young woman in a red dress may have tripped the algorithm at Facebook somehow. Maybe Facebook thought, this is spam, this is an advertisement, I don't know. Uh, It wasn't, obviously, but as soon as I changed the featured image to something else and moved the one of the beautiful young woman in the red dress down to the secondary image uh, slot, then the image started coming through. So kind of weird, not sure what was going on there, but in any event, I got it working by the end. But in this episode, we're going to be talking through several videos that are actually, I think, along very similar lines, and I'll explain as we go along, very similar lines to what we've been talking about in recent episodes You can go back two ago where I talked through not just the two documentaries from The Daily Wire that I recently watched, but also the two books by Carl Truman I recently read. And Strange New World in particular has a lot of bearing on some of the things we're going to be reacting to and responding to in this episode So by all means, go back, check out that episode if you haven't yet. Also, definitely do give that book a read. It's well worth your time. But I have a backlog, and we're going to clear that backlog. A backlog of untouched, until this morning, reaction videos that have been sent to me. Content that would make for great reaction videos that I just have not felt like I had the headspace to tackle. And so they just build up and build up between helping my sons with their first term, taking community college classes at Ames, and also helping my mom with her getting out of Fort Myers, Florida, and thinking through how to get out of there after Hurricane Ian, plus trying to get some things figured out here in Colorado, where my brother uh, brought her to. She's staying with him these days until insurance and housing and everything else gets straight. Between those things, plus also a soon-to-be forthcoming job change, I just haven't felt like there was an opportune time to get back into reaction videos. So I apologize. I was hoping to. I was planning on it. I still do hope to and plan on doing it soon. But I have this podcast, and this podcast I'm much more experienced with. There's less that I have to figure out or finagle with or potentially get frustrated about. And it's easy, even though these are longer than reaction videos typically are. It's a lot more cut and dry and straightforward. And so I'm going to react 
to this backlog here on the podcast. And that's how we're going to deal with it is I do reaction audio. And someday, uh, if I get a whole bunch of people uh, pat- patronizing me, I guess you could say, pa- patreonizing me uh, from Patreon, uh, if I get a whole bunch of people listening to uh, the content and supporting, maybe I quit my day job and uh, this is just what I do. And when that day comes, by all means, I will be happy to jump in and figure out video podcasting and how to do reaction videos on a more regular basis. But for right now, this is easy. I'll be honest with you. And so this is what I'm going to do. This is what I know, and this is what I'm going to do. But first of all, the first video we're going to do some reaction to, you won't be able to see, obviously, unless you click the link. And I'll put a link in the episode description for this podcast episode. But this one is about a young man and a young woman named James and Marin. Uh, the young woman is very butch, and the young man is very effeminate, and they are dating. Uh, the title of the video is He's Feminine and I'm Masculine and We're in Love. Love Don't Judge. And uh, I'm going to play some of the audio from this. You can take a listen, and then we're going to talk through some of the themes and some of what is to be found in this video that is worth remarking on. This is Merrin. She fell in love with James. I'm a masculine presenting woman. And I am a feminine presenting straight man. I guess people perceive us as weird as a couple because we don't follow the regular status quo. And we don't look like how they want us to look. The couple met through TikTok, and despite not being each other's usual type, I was identifying as gay because it was easier than explaining all the ins and outs of who I was. I've only dated girls in the past. The most frequent question we get is, who is the woman? Or like, who is the girl? (laughs) Who is the boy? Who is the man? Hi, I'm Marin, and this is my boyfriend James. I'm a masculine presenting woman. And I am a feminine presenting straight man. Marin and James met online after a chance comment from Marin on TikTok sparked a conversation between the pair. I just was posting different pictures of myself, like dress femme, dress mask, and I had commented on this other masculine girl's TikTok who was talking about how she thought that femme men were cute. And I was like, oh my God, girl, you're talking about me, honey. And then I saw his comment under that video. That's how I got to his profile. And then I saw his videos and I was like, I'll just flirt with him just for fun. But I was also thinking in my head, like, this is just gonna be a fun little thing that happens for a couple days and then it'll be over with. I never thought that it would be a real thing. With a connection this strong, Marin and James were keen to meet. And even after their first date, this couple knew their relationship was going to be something special. Okay. We'll just stop right there. I think that's enough to get the gist. A um, <clears throat> couple things. And uh, this is a little bit of a longer video. It's eight minutes, 14 seconds. I played the first two minutes or so for you. The YouTube channel that put this out is called... Truly, just so you know, they've got 10 million subscribers and they are so edgy that they don't even capitalize the name of their channel. So um, really non-conforming to even the standards of grammar, what rebels they are. But this couple, James, uh, for instance, he says at one point later on that he realized in high school after having been a hypermasculine uh, male, traditional hypermasculine male, and I quote, he realized it was just easier to present as feminine. And he's a black man, she's a white woman, but as they say, he presents uh, feminine. In other words, he behaves, his mannerisms, his dress is very effeminate. Uh, he wears false 
uh, eyelashes. He wears makeup and uh, he mixes male and female clothes and is just very uh, flamboyantly effeminate. Used to identify as gay because that's what he thought he was. And again, I just want to emphasize, he says at one point that in high school, he realized it was just easier to present feminine. And why would that be, right? Why would that be easier? Well, maybe, possibly, because he was indoctrinated, brainwashed, and uh, manipulated into believing that as a young black man, it wasn't safe to be masculine and young and black and (laughs) in America. And so then there's a kind of safety, I guess, and a, a kind of acceptance that is gained given the circumstances if he uh, plays around with his identity, plays around with how he, as he says, presents. She, meanwhile, talks about how she always dated girls before she was a lesbian, I guess, and then she meets him and she's drawn to him and he's drawn to her and they're flirting back and forth. And then they thought, well, hey, why not? Let's just uh, be a couple. Let's be an item. And now they really have a strong attachment as the narrator of the video says. But she says at a certain point, she, you know, later on in the video talks about liking to see how he's going to dress when they're going to go out for dinner or go out with friends and how she likes to dress to match. And Along those lines, I want to say, despite rejecting gender norms, they are, in some sense, conforming, nevertheless, to the new nonconformity. In other words, it's ironic on some level that she is conforming to the traditional male gender norm and, and social construct, as it's called. He is conforming to the female gender construct and norm. And when you hear this talk of choosing, right, she was dating girls and then what? She had no choice but to date him. She was born this way that she was going to date him. I mean, she made a choice, right? She was making a choice to date girls and then she made a choice to date him. And he, meanwhile was presenting, as he says, hyper-masculine. And I saw the pictures of him from high school. He doesn't look hyper-masculine. He looks like just a, a young uh, American male wearing boys' clothes and playing sports and putting on a nice suit to go to prom or something, probably. And then at a certain point, he realized it was easier to be feminine And it was easier to come out as gay. And so he came out as gay and now he's not anymore. And that just underscores the point that these are choices. These are choices that are being made to imitate the opposite gender or to have a romantic relationship with the opposite gender or to have a romantic relationship with your own sex, members of your own sex. These are choices that are made and they are heavily influenced As the claims of the radical gender theorists uh, insist, they are heavily influenced by culture and society. And so what do you think is going to happen if you go from affirming men being men and affirming women being women to celebrating more than anyone else men who pretend to be women or women who pretend to be men or homosexuality? What? do you think is going to happen in the absence of God when you create a culture that celebrates the one and it casts aspersions on the other? Of course, you're going to get the kind of behavior that you're encouraging and that you're indoctrinating these young people uh, to believe. But to be clear, my wife and I, by contrast, I I think we could be said to be nonconformists to the nonconformity that is common these days. We conform to heteronormative monogamous marriage, i.e. I'm the man, she's the woman. That's what God intends. I lead our family. 
My wife submits to my leadership and my authority as God intends. I have a responsibility to God to love and lead my wife and my children well. They have a responsibility before God to respect my leadership. But in our generation and in the generations coming up after us, that actually is the nonconformist <laughs> lifestyle to say we're going to embrace God's plan for maleness and femaleness, God's plan for marriage, God's plan for the family. That's the nonconformist uh, expression. And actually, ironically, this uh, couple, James and Marin, they are conformists because they're conforming to what it is that they were told is going to be celebrated and accepted in their generation. But lest anyone suppose that there is no big deal now, you know, it, hey, how great is it that now they're a heterosexual couple and therefore, you know, hey, we should celebrate that. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, it, it, it's not as it was. And yet, they're still rebelling against what God instituted as far as men being men and women being women, even though they're a heterosexual couple. What do we do with God saying in Leviticus 22.5 that men wearing women's clothes and women wearing men's clothes are an abomination to him? And I quote, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall... A man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. And notice also too, I mean, for the crowd that says, don't hate the sinner, hate the sin. This verse doesn't just say that the practice or the behavior or the lifestyle is an abomination. It says the person themselves, whoever does these things is an abomination to our God. Look it up. If you don't believe me, in the ESV, that's how it reads. You could probably find some New Agey translation that paraphrases that differently. But this says very, very clearly, whoever does these things, whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. So this is still abominable for men to present feminine, for women to present masculine. Can can it be okay that some women are a bit more assertive or they have a deeper voice just naturally or what have you, that some men do not have a deeper voice, they have a higher pitched voice or they're shorter or they're more slight in their build? You know, Can that be something that just you, you, you do the best with that you can? Uh, yes. But when men and women are making a choice as this young man and this young woman are making a choice when they're making a choice to present opposite how God made them. That's rebellion against God. It's not rebellion against a social norm. If it's all just subjective and it's all just whatever you say, whatever I say, whatever we feel like, whatever our opinion is, well, whatever. Okay. Cause obviously as my wife and I are demonstrating, we don't, put all the stock in the world in what our generation is celebrating and what it's denouncing, you know? So, so obviously, okay, check the box, social constructs, eh, they change, right? If you want to call them that, I would just say, this is our generation. This is our culture. This is the spirit of this age. But if you want to call it a social construct, We'll go with that term for the purposes of a discussion so you know what I'm talking about. If it's God having said, this is the way that it is, this is how I made you, this is what I expect, this is what I require, this is what I command, this is what I promise for either rewards or punishments, and yes, God does punish and he does reward both and the two sides of the same coin of his justice, his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness, well then... Is there any room in our conception of ourselves and society for saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, and you should repent? And if we don't have room for that, because everybody wears pants now, and increasingly, 
men and women alike, wear makeup and dresses and all manner of outfits like this guy's wearing, you know, a tight crop top and short shorts. You know, if we say, ah, well, who am I to judge, right? Um, what's the alternative? And is this a choice between friendship with God on the one hand and friendship with the world, which is enmity with God, the scriptures say? Is this a choice between those? And should we not, if so, prefer to fear God rather than fearing men? The answer is emphatically without question in the affirmative. But moving on to our next clip, women in the mainstream are the ones leaving relationships and they are not wives anymore. According to this short, another YouTube video from Just Pearly Thoughts. And I'm going to play this one. It's a much shorter one, so you'll get the whole thing. But this video uh, also relates to what it is that we just talked about with James and Marin. Take a listen. Women leave, women divorce men 70 to 80% of the time. I, I would argue in relationships, it's probably similar. Men aren't leaving, women are. So to a guy's point of view, he's going to commit to this girl. And what does he get? He doesn't get purity anymore. You know, these, these hoes, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't get youth anymore. So he doesn't get either of those things. A lot of times she already has a kid. So, so he, he's not fulfilling his mating strategy. On top of that, even if he does find a good woman that maybe has the qualities he's looking for, he, she was going to want him to marry her. And what does he get out of that? Oh, she can leave and take half and take my kid. And she's paid to take my kids away from me. She she gets more money if she takes my children. And so from the men's point of view, they're just kind of like, F it, because like women aren't wives nowadays. And what do they get out of it? But like, you know Men are logical. They're logical people. And so they're, they're thinking, does the benefit outweigh the cost? And like, I just think as women, we have to look at ourselves and say, the benefits we bring nowadays don't outweigh the cost for most men. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> okay. Lots there. <laughs> um, where to begin? So first of all, the typically not virgins thing Many having a kid already from a previous dating relationship or one night stand or what have you. Um, yeah. Why would that be uh, the ideal? Can anyone say, honestly, honest question, can anyone say that is their dream scenario? If they're a young man and they're looking to marry a gal uh, you know, they, they prefer that she's been with lots of other guys and possibly also has a kid. Uh, I would say emphatically, no, no, that's not the ideal. And why would it be right? Why, why would it be? What would recommend that except somebody just trying to justify, uh, you know, what it is that we have as the norm these days, trying to normalize deviance. Uh, second thing, you know, like this gal, she references something she calls, you know, men's mating strategy. Now, I don't know if that's the phraseology I would use, that men have a mating strategy, but I would say it has been hardwired into us by the Lord God Almighty that we want to raise our own kids, ideally. And that's not to say that, it, you know, in the case of adoption, that a virtuous man, a noble man, an upstanding man is going to say, I don't want to adopt. I don't want to raise someone else's kid. There are definitely noble, upstanding, virtuous men who are phenomenal fathers to children that are not theirs except by adoption. And that's a beautiful picture, especially for Christians. It's a beautiful picture of God's love for us, that we've been adopted in. We were not his people, and yet he called us in Christ. If we are Christians, if we are in Christ, he called us to be adopted in as sons and to be regarded really and truly as sons of the Most High God. But most men want the ideal. That is to say, 
God regards us because of what Christ did in conquering sin and death on the cross, coming and living a sinless life, providing the perfect atoning sacrifice on our behalf. He is the ideal. And then we get grafted in. And so also, we have to recognize that it is totally legitimate for men to want legitimate offspring, legitimate heirs. And if you can point to exceptions, like the ancient Greeks, for instance, in reading Polybius and Plutarch, they talk a lot about the Spartans, for instance. The Spartans were totally okay with open marriages, so long as the man was always the one being asked for permission. And yet, the rest of the Greek city-states commented on that. The Romans commented on that with some combination of horror and curiosity because that's not natural. So it was not the norm just because the Spartans were doing it. If it had been the norm, then it wouldn't have been commented on by Polybius and Plutarch as being this exceptional, odd thing. So even in a pre-Christian, you know, no concept of Jesus and the morality of the Middle, Middle Ages, the medieval period, you know, even aside from that and before that, there was a sense of morality that speaks to natural law and the way that God has hardwired us as men and women, but principally I'm talking about the men right now, to want family to be set up, for us to see ourselves in a certain role within the family. In the Old Testament, you have this character Hosea, who God tells to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. And God tells him on the front end, she is not going to be faithful to you. She's going to go whoring after other men, and she will have children by them. And you're going to name those children things like, not mine. That is not my kid. And she's going to be unfaithful, and she's going to run away from you like Israel runs away from me, God says. And this is going to be a picture. It's going to be a metaphor. It's going to be an analogy. It's going to be a skit in living color, if you will, for the people of Israel so that they can see how I feel as God, as their God, when Israel runs after the gods of the nations around Israel. The the gods of other nations are not their God, and yet they are an unfaithful wife. So here we see again in the Old Testament, we see it in ancient Greece, and we see it today in practical terms that this is not what men want. And so this gal, she's talking a lot of sense that this is not what men want. They don't want to marry some gal who is 30 years old and has been with lots of other men and has other kids by other men. That's not their ideal. And then you add on top of that the additional layer of the women wanting to be married, but not wanting to be wives. So that is to say, they want all of the benefits of marriage. They want the man to be committed to them, but the women don't want to be wives. They don't want to submit to a husband. They don't want to follow his leadership and authority. They've been conditioned by our public schools to believe in radical egalitarianism and that they need to pursue their self-actualization and prove that they are every bit as strong and stronger and more capable than men by not listening to their husband, by not doing what he says, by not following his lead. That would be demeaning for them. It would be beneath them as they see it. So the women, they want marriage. They want the commitment from the man, but they don't want to be wives. And then if in the course of a marriage, a man does marry them with, you know, all of the other considerations known full well on the front end, the woman in 70 to 80% of cases decides she wants to file for divorce. The courts will take half of what that man owns and give it to her and force him to pay for her upkeep if they had any children, if they had any legitimate children that are actually his children. And what does he get out of that, right? He gets a lot of exposure to risk. He gets not much benefit. He gets a lot of complexity and a lot of difficulty and a lot of stress. And he doesn't want that in the majority of cases. Most men 
don't want that, and why would they? Right? She's going to get custody of their children. She's going to get half of what he owns, and he's going to have his life ruined. So she's exactly right. The long and short of it, she's she's exactly right that men who are logical in our day, apart from the grace of God and finding a woman who loves the Lord and who will love and submit to them in marriage, men conclude marriage is not worth the trouble. And that's very unfortunate. You get men presenting feminine and women presenting masculine, and they've just thrown out all of the norms. And they might say, yeah, why not? Especially if they do get celebrated. And if he can play the card, well, you know, you're just persecuting me because I'm, I'm a feminine man. And, uh, you know, the patriarchy strikes again, even though you're a woman and I'm a man. It's, it's chaos. It's confusion. And except in rare cases where your videos are getting a million hits on TikTok and now people want to come and put you in the limelight and that's what really, really matters. That's what is really important to you. Social acceptance being affirmed. Except in cases like that, a lot of men are just saying, no thanks. And they're going their own way. And that's uh, that's a big problem. It's a big, big problem. And it will lead, it is leading currently at an accelerated rate to the collapse of American civilization, period. But moving on, our next clip here is of Joe Rogan and a guest talking about alcohol and how alcohol has gotten more potent. Uh, Has it gotten more potent? Take a listen to what this guy has to say, and I've got some thoughts for you. So this stuff is new. So having alcohol that's this strong is something we've only had for a couple hundred years. Really? Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize that. So for most of our history, we've been drinking like 2 to 3% beers. uh, 2 to 3%? Yeah, that's historically, it's typically what beers came in at. Grape wines, you could get up to like 8 to 10. But there's a built-in limit to natural fermentation. So the yeast are turning sugars into alcohol, which is a poison. So the yeast are slowly poisoning themselves, basically. And we've bred these super hardy yeast. So like nowadays, you can get an Australian Syrah up to like 16% ABV. Wow. Which is historically really unprecedented. About 20,000 years ago to 13,000 years ago, we started making alcohol seriously, not just relying on fruit lying around that has some alcohol in it. And then distillation happens probably around 1300s in China in 15, 1600s in Europe. So that sounds like a long time ago, but really, evolutionarily, it's yesterday. We just, we really haven't had time culturally or genetically to adapt to access to this kind of alcohol. Okay, so a couple things. One, as a young earth creationist, I don't believe that we've been around for 20,000 years. So that's point number one. Um, Also, two, I, I don't know for sure whether this gentleman, I'm not familiar with him, is correct in what he's saying in terms of how potent, how high the alcohol by volume percentage was, uh, you know, with, uh, how high a proof uh, alcohol was prior to 500 to 700 years ago. I don't know if that's true, but let's just say for the sake of argument that it is true, right? It, it it sounds plausible that we've been breeding uh, selectively hardier strains of yeast. We've been you know, manipulating yeast to where it doesn't poison itself uh, quite so quickly. And so therefore, it can keep on doing the fermentation thing until we get to higher and higher uh, uh, you know, alcohol content in, in our beers and our wines and our liquors and, and whatnot. Let's suppose that's true. The claim is made that we are not prepared culturally, socially to deal with higher ABV beverages, and that's making us sick, and that's causing you know, problems in society, socially, uh, in the family, and in you know, all kinds of arenas, right? Every, every arena where alcohol may impair our uh, health and our functioning. <clears throat> I would argue, but besides the question of how long humans have been around on planet earth, I would argue our trouble is not so much higher proof alcohol. Our problem is more foundational than that. And it has to do with our hearts. It has to do with our minds. It has to do with um, more specifically a market reduction in Christian civilization in the West. 
that's that's our issue. The issue is not first and foremost that you can come across a hundred proof liquor now, whereas back in the day, back in ancient Egypt, they were drinking you know maybe ten to fifteen percent ABV wine at most. The problem is that we reject there being an outside external moderating influence on our behavior, and we want to do whatever feels good. And also, too, philosophically, we want to self-actualize and present our genuine, authentic selves. This is what Carl Truman talks about in Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Self-expression is the highest good. And the more authentic, the closer to a state of nature, the better. You drink alcohol, you do drugs, and that puts you into a state of mind that is uninhibited. And that's great, but it's not, right? It's not great. And so we put fences around some of the effects. So you can't drive while drinking and you can't operate heavy machinery while drinking and you can't go to work most places while under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or you will get fired, or you will go to jail, or you will have your license revoked, or you will be destroyed socially. Everybody is going to hate you if you, you know, crash into somebody and and you you know you kill a whole bunch of other people because you were driving under the influence. But what's at the root here is a rejection on the preventative self-control and restraint that it, it is cultural, right? Rogan's guest here is right. It is cultural, but the problem is not that we haven't had enough thousands of years for our culture to evolve. The problem is not evolution. The problem is sanctification. The problem is being made righteous by God through Christ. And up until, let's say, 500 years ago with the Protestant Reformation and a lot of other things that spun off of certain strains of thought that rose out of the Protestant Reformation and the Counter-Reformation in Europe, we have said, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I need to express myself. And so culturally, we've actually devolved in many ways in the past 500 years. Not that I'm criticizing the Protestant Reformation per se. I think the Reformation needed to happen. But some of the other things that arose out of a kind of Pandora's box of the thinking uh, around that time when the Protestant Reformation kicked off, some of those ideas have absolutely had a corrosive effect on our capacity for self-control particularly if we strip Christianity from the public square. Augustine would say that evil is a diminution of the good. Evil is not something that exists in and of itself. It is a lessening by degree of goodness that God made everything with and for. And if you read about cultures where drinking alcohol is just a common thing, like let's say Jewish culture, there's a very low incidence of alcoholism uh, among Jewish people. Traditional Orthodox Jewish people will have alcohol when they get together as a family, when they have a meal, when they have a wedding, when they have a birthday or a bar mitzvah or what have you. It's common for there to be wine, for there to be alcohol. And yet, culturally, there's a stigma attached to drunkenness. And there's also culturally a mechanism whereby the family and friends around somebody who's had a little bit too much to drink step in and say, I think you've had enough. That's quite enough. And the person who's being told, hey, I think you've had enough, listens. In a way, we've been told we should not be constrained. We shouldn't be told, hey, don't do that. I think that's not quite good for you. It's not good for everybody else. You're disgracing yourself. You're embarrassing yourself. You're, you're starting to say some silly things and do some things that are not for the best. And even there, right? it's not to say that everything is fine. Everything's been fine for the Jews or for other cultures that feature alcohol in a social setting. No, no. We read 
prohibitions on drunkenness in the Bible for a reason. We wouldn't be told not to if we didn't have a temptation and a proclivity and a track record of doing it. But the question is one of evolution and an evolutionary presupposition that with enough time, we'll get it. We'll, We'll figure it out. Trial and error, random chance. Or on the other hand, we need God. We need God's help to reform our culture. That that's really what it comes down to, truth be told. And and I'll be honest, with regards to high alcohol content beverages, I I do drink alcohol. Uh, I am not a prohibitionist, but I am staunchly against drunkenness. And here recently, this is a small uh, rabbit trail, but not really. Here recently, I was watching. What is a Woman, the documentary by Matt Walsh. And I had a bottle of whiskey and it was way smooth, very, very smooth and not filling. And I had too much and it made me sick. And you know what? I think it is very wise to say, avoid it, right? To say, avoid it. Do I think we should be prohibiting people No, that's been tried about a hundred years ago. It didn't go well. And that's not what I'm talking about when I say there needs to be a cultural revival by God's grace. But what I am saying is it would be beneficial for us to create a culture as individuals contributing to the formation of culture that is distinctly Christian and that affirms and celebrates self-restraint towards the end of honoring God loving one another well, doing our duties, not forgetting justice, being dignified, not being drunk with wine, but being full of the spirit. And if we do that, I think what we'll find is a lot of the reasons that people drink to excess, like for instance, if something was going to make me a first time ever uh, drink to excess like that, ever, the documentary, What is a Woman?, by Matt Walsh and the Daily Wire crew, sure did push the buttons. But you start dealing with comprehensively repentance and a turning away from sin and a turning towards the face of God and seeking the face of God in Christ on God's terms, living life as he calls us to, as he promises blessings for in this life and the life to come. You start doing that, and I think you will find that people less and less want or need alcohol, strong alcohol, a strong, stiff drink. I think what you'll find is less and less people gravitating towards things that numb their perception of reality because reality won't be so ugly, harsh, brutal, mean, cold, nonsensical, chaotic, destructive. What we'll find is the blessings are compounded in a way that right now, actually, we're seeing the curses compounded and multiplying and exponentially curses. But moving on, enough about that for the time being. Dan Coates, Daniel Coates at Not The Bee reviewed Rings of Power season one. And uh, speaking of things that might drive one to drink, I have been a Lord of the Rings fan since... I first watched The Fellowship of the Ring, Peter Jackson's adaptation of Tolkien's work in theaters. When it first came out, I think opening night actually, in Hillsboro, Ohio, I watched Fellowship of the Ring with some friends and my brother. And knowing that Amazon was going to take Tolkien's Middle Earth and do something with it, I have not been excited to see it at all. Dan Coates is not a fan. In his review, he points out that Amazon spent $715 million producing its first eight-episode season of The Rings of Power, the prequel to Lord of the Rings, and it is the most expensive show of all time. Galadriel, you might remember from 
Peter Jackson's movies, or if you read the books, which you should definitely do, the books are even better. They're both good in different ways. Peter Jackson does some things. He takes some liberties that I, I don't love. I don't like that he takes Tom Bombadil out, for instance. I think that's a, a major, major mistake that he made. But Galadriel, you'll remember, the elf maiden, elf queen, uh, holds one of the rings of power that the elves have. <clears throat> she... If you ask me, speaking of presenting masculine, Galadriel presents very masculine in The Rings of Power. And from what I've read, even though I haven't seen any of this yet except the trailer, she's the smartest, bravest, most confident, take charge, and generally capable character by far. She consistently shows herself to be better, superior to all of the males around. Uh, Also, too, as an aside, and this doesn't bother me because I'm a racist. It bothers me because there's a disparity with the Peter Jackson films. There's a disparity with even just the common sense take on Middle Earth. But apparently, according to Amazon, Middle Earth was much more ethnically diverse in the previous age when Rings of Power is set because there are definitely people of color who play various roles of elves and dwarves and probably humans as well. But again, just to drive home the point, Amazon spent $715 million to produce this. And they've apparently taken a page from the Disney playbook with regards to Star Wars in denouncing Tolkien fans who don't like what they've done with their money. And more to the point, what they've done with the story that they're familiar with, that they love. Fans of Tolkien do not, or at least a lot, a lot of them, do not like the Rings of Power and what Jeff Bezos and Amazon have done with it. And for my part, like I said, I haven't watched any more than the trailer, but I'll admit I'm avoiding it after seeing what they did to Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time. I watched the first episode with my kids and I was not prepared, having read the entire series, the, the entire Wheel of Time series. It took me like a year of steady reading only it to get through it all. And I really enjoyed it. I was not prepared for how much skin and sex was shown in the first episode of the Wheel of Time. And it did not match the book. That's, that's what I'm saying. It did not match the book. There was not all that skin. There was not all that sexy sex in Wheel of Time. And yet... They chose to go there because they thought the story needed it or that it would sell better or more people would be interested or they were, they were more working off of George R.R. R. Martin's books than they were Wheel of Time and Robert Jordan's work. That, that's really what it comes down to. So then to know after watching that first episode and I couldn't watch anymore, I was just like, ah, this is not accurate at all. Perrin Ibarra was not married for one. He was a teenager. He was not married. Also, he definitely did not brutally and accidentally kill his wife with an ax as he was trying to swing at a Trolloc that was attacking. And yet that's what they, they chose to do that and go there because I guess that makes it more complex and uh, dynamic or something dumb knowing that they did that with wheel of time i just i i did not have a good feeling at all about what they were going to do i was excited before i saw the first episode of wheel of time about both wheel of time and also the rings of power and at some point here i'm going to i'm going to break down and actually watch rings of power and check it out and i'll let you know <laughs> what i think but uh, so far, it's not looking good, folks. It's not looking good. But last but not least, uh, we'll get a little bit more political. Everything's political these days. It is just the social imaginary that we are living under, thanks to the powers that be. Everything is political. Everything is sexual. Everything is psychological. And that's not an accident. That is a consequence of having thrown out theology as the queen of the sciences, having rejected God as a civilization. Doug Mastriano 
is running as the Republican candidate for Pennsylvania governor. And he's got a campaign ad that actually relates to all of this. And I'm going to play it for you. It's about three minutes long. But I want you to hear some of what is drawn out here, what is connected by Mastriano and the contrast between him and his Democrat rival. And then I've got some thoughts. I've got some commentary for you with regards to it. And just to tie this all into what we should be about moving forward. Take a listen. Children in Pennsylvania as early as five years old are being subjected to sexual indoctrination under Democrat leadership. In Montgomery County, a parent said that one of their child's kindergarten classmates identifies as trans, and so now the entire class is forced to read books about what that means in kindergarten. To make matters worse, the Department of Education in Pennsylvania is encouraging teachers to host gender-neutral days at school. While parents are unaware at home, their daughters may share a bathroom with a biological male. Rather than doing his job in addressing crime in Pennsylvania, Attorney General Josh Shapiro filed an amicus brief against families in Florida and Virginia to support the idea of biological boys using girls' bathrooms. This time last year in Virginia, thanks to Josh Shapiro, a 15-year-old girl was raped by a male student in the girls' bathroom. Dr. Levine, now the Assistant U.S. Health Secretary, says that kids should have access to experimental puberty-blocking therapies. When questioned about whether there should be parental approval, Levine refused to answer. But the human rights campaign wants unsupportive parents left in the dark. Children are encouraged to socially transition with their names and pronouns, and the parents can be coerced or convinced later on to accept it. The human rights campaign also supports irreversible double mastectomies and genital surgeries for kids. And guess who they endorse for governor of Pennsylvania? That's right, Josh Shapiro. Additionally, books that depict explicit sexual acts are available in our schools. When a mother filed a lawsuit to have these books removed from Pennsylvania schools, Josh Shapiro himself filed a motion just last month to dismiss her case. Will kids in Pennsylvania continue to have their innocence taken from them? Will they continue to be taught what to think and believe about their bodies by a school system without parental consent? Not on my watch. According to Rasmussen reports, 89% of voters believe, rightly, that parents should have the last say on what their kids are being taught. 69% of the parents believe that sexually explicit books should be removed from the libraries. As your governor, I'll ensure parents have power over their children's education, which means full school transparency. On day one, boys in the girls' bathroom ends. On day one, boys follow the science in the girls' locker room ends. On day one, no more boys on the girls' team, and the sexualization of our kids will end in our schools as well. This includes removing sexualized material in our elementary schools. Public schools will be a safe place for learning, and if you don't like your public school setting, you'll have the option to choose how and where you want to educate your child, because I'm going to fight for school choice. Your vote on November 8th is a vote for the future of our children. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Apropos, apropos, this is why I reject claims that there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. Can it be true that some Republicans are no different than Democrats? Absolutely. Can it also be true, and I would say in much the same vein, that some boys dress up like girls and some girls dress up like boys? Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to tell with an individual whether they are a boy or a girl, and they have intentionally made it confusing so that they can say, aha, you're just discriminating against me, or they can make you uncomfortable because there's a kind of sadistic pleasure that they get out of doing so. So also politically, somebody can be a Democrat in a Republican's body. <laughs> they can say, I am a Republican, and yet their positions don't match the ideals of the Republican platform. Their ideals do not match up with conservative principles in any way, shape, or form. And just like I wouldn't date a dude who dressed up like a chick, I mean, especially because I'm married, but just like I wouldn't, if I were single, date a dude who was dressed up like a chick, just because she's wearing a dress, 
just because she's got long hair, just because she's got big eyelashes. Uh, neither would I vote for a Democrat trapped in a Republican's body. And neither should you. But if the Republican Party is going to make stance like this, they have my vote. Period. If they're going to take principled stands to protect children from being mutilated, from being manipulated, from being molested, if they're going to give parental rights a hearing in the public square and then actually act on what they promise when they're campaigning, when you vote for them, they will get my vote. If this is all a lot of song and dance and it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, because as a friend of mine who was very active in politics a while back has told me, a lot of these politicians, Republicans as well, send their campaign volunteers and workers off to be trained on how we're going to make all these promises and then we're not going to fulfill them so that we've got something to run on next time around. You know what? If that's what it's going to be, spare me. And you can't blame people who would have voted for you when they stop showing up, when they stop wanting to have anything whatsoever to do with you. You are a hypocrite. You are play acting. That's what hypocrisy means at its root. That is the oldest translation of hypocrite is that it is play acting, pretending. If you're going to play act and you're going to campaign on all these things and then have no intention of actually doing any of them just so you can keep running off of the same positions, keep getting reelected, well then, thank you next. I got better things to do than vote for you or give you my time or give you my attention or give you my endorsement. But if Doug Mastriano, for instance, for example, in everything that I've seen, everything I've heard from him, has been principled, has shown integrity, has shown courage, and he's running for Pennsylvania governor and saying, we want to give the choice back to parents in a meaningful way to get their kids out of the public schools, if that's what it takes, to give them their tax money back to be able to homeschool their kids or send them to a private school where they're going to get a education that's decent, that's worth a darn. That is a winning strategy. That is a short, medium, and long-term strategy for making America good again. Now, I think it would be a mistake, and this is where I'll tie in with what I've been reading yesterday and today. You know, I read all of, none dare call it conspiracy yesterday, and it's very disturbing to think that the same very wealthy, very powerful people may be controlling both the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, both capitalist forces in the West and communist forces around the world for the past century, so that they always are the ones that win. The very wealthy, the very powerful, the very amoral, the very ungodly people funding all sides of conflicts want to make sure they come out on top. If that's true, and it really doesn't matter whether you vote Republican or vote Democrat, it doesn't make any difference. That is a very bleak picture. You know what? We're almost to Halloween. That is the scariest story you could tell me. <laughs> Forget slasher films. Forget ghost stories. That sends chills up my spine. But here's the thing. For one, God is sovereign. God sends his reigns on the just and the unjust. God makes promises not just to punish, but to give grace to the humble and to reward those who diligently seek his face, those who turn from their wicked ways and put their trust in him. And knowing that, I refuse to be fatalistic. I refuse. I understand the irritation on the part of some. If I say I'm optimistic in the long term, I understand they have a little bit of an allergic reaction to that because they're saying, oh, how could things get better, right? They're just going to get worse and worse until Christ comes back. And so why not just give up? Let's sell all that we have and let's wait on the rooftop because he's coming back any minute now. It's, it's pretty bad. And I say, 
read the whole story. Read Genesis to Revelation. For instance, when Abraham is trying to negotiate with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is remembering that his nephew, Lot, still lives there. Abraham and Lot needed to go different ways because their servants were quarreling over where to graze, where to water their flocks. And Abraham and Lot decided to part ways because there were just too many people, too many interests. And Abraham gave Lot the choice, and he decided to settle in the land of Sodom because it looked like a better place to be. It looked like a more economically prosperous place to be. And yet, the men of Sodom were thoroughly corrupt and wicked and depraved and evil. And God knew that and was intent on destroying Sodom and wiping it out. And actually, ironically, the thing that escapes most people is that that is a mercy to the rest of the nations, to have that put on display, that God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So does a people. A people reaps what they sow. But Abraham is talking back and forth with God about how many righteous men living in a city would God spare that city and not destroy the righteous with the wicked over? And even if it was just one, God said he would not. And yet his solution was to get Lot out, not to spare the whole city. And yet you think of Jonah being sent to Nineveh to preach repentance, turn from your wicked ways, or else God will destroy your city and all of you with it. Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to call the people to repentance because he knows that if they do repent, God won't destroy them. And Jonah wants to see them destroyed. And yet God is stubbornly insistent and even sends a storm as Jonah is on his way in the opposite direction to get as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. God sends a storm and Jonah is thrown overboard so that the storm will stop because Jonah admits, he confesses, the storm is because of me, because I have disobeyed God. God told me to go to Nineveh and I disobeyed. He's thrown overboard. God sends a great fish to swallow him up. And you can say, I don't think that's possible. That can't possibly be true. What an idiot. What kind of an idiot would believe that that was possible? Don't you know biology? Don't you know how these things work? Jonah would be dead if a fish swallowed him. He wouldn't be alive. He wouldn't survive that. And to that, I say, what kind of idiots are we? That we think boys can be girls and girls can be boys. Or we think that it really doesn't matter what kind of an organization or institution or unit we say is a family. However, we want to orient it, it's just as well. And the more contrary to what God says, the better. Because that's our self-actualization. God is dead and we've killed him, as Nietzsche wrote. What kind of idiots are we that we believe that, despite all evidence to the contrary, day in, day out? So I do believe that a God who is capable of creating ex nihilo, all that is, is also capable of sending a storm. I also believe that a God who is capable of making man out of the dust of the ground is also capable of making a fish, which is capable of swallowing a man and that man not dying even three days in the belly of the fish until he's spat up on the shores of Nineveh. I believe my God is able to do those things. And I think he would know much better than you or I what he did or didn't do, what he is or isn't capable of. With God, all things are possible is the Ohio State motto, by the way. You wouldn't know it if you've been to Ohio. (laughs) But with God, all things are possible. And it would be foolish to suppose otherwise. What's needed on our part is to read the whole counsel of God, to seek God's face, to turn from our sin and our folly, and to ask him for wisdom. James says in the New Testament, James, half-brother of Jesus, author of the letter from James, says, if any of you 
lacks wisdom. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. To all, we need to ask God for wisdom because we do not have it right now. We don't got this. (laughs) But God can definitely heal our land. He can take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He can turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. He can restore broken marriages, broken homes. This whole business of men needing to be men and women needing to be women. Our excessive abuse of drugs and alcohol. Our addiction to so many things. Even, dare I say it, what Amazon has done with Rings of Power. All of it, God can fix that. And I pray that he does. And I pray that we ask him as a people too, that we turn from our sin, we turn towards righteousness by his grace, that we have a revival in this country and that it begins in us. I pray that that's the way that this goes. Even if it doesn't, tell the righteous it will go well for them. God will bless and keep and work all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that is a great comfort. And that's enough optimism for me. That's enough to hope on. But I gotta run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.